0: good evening all right welcome to our wednesday night bible study welcome to our live stream viewers Uh, for those of you don't know my name is scotty brown and i have the pleasure of volunteering here at Viewer bible fellowship Um, the reason why i am teaching tonight is because the majority of our leadership team and uh, pastoral staff was at the sing conference in nashville and they're making their way back right now but um you know i was thinking about it when uh pastor greg asked me to teach and it's um you know it's a it's a wonderful thing that we have a church leadership that really seeks out uh being fed into um so often they can you know when you're in leadership you can just go and go and think about the task at hand and get burnt out and get emptied out and so when they set aside a time to go to conferences they're not going to like a seminar on you know, 10 ways to, to build your church or something like that. They're going uh, with a primary focus of uh, hearing sound teaching and being fed into. So it's great for them and we're happy for them that they get that time. But also uh, we're all gonna be able to feel the benefit of that because they're gonna come back fueled up and uh, with some sound teaching uh, to share with us. So that's great. So we're continuing in First uh, Kings. We're in chapter 21 of 1 Kings. We'll get through that tonight. And then there's one more chapter, and then it'll be on to 2 Kings. So we're almost through this book. I will admit, uh, Pastor Greg asked me to teach um, for tonight. He asked me about a week and a half ago. When he did, I kind of did some looking ahead to see where we might be, and I came to this chapter, and I read it, and I asked him, uh, are you going to be done with chapter 20? when it's time for me to preach, and he said yes, and I, uh, I will admit to you that the reason why I asked was because I was not really looking forward to this chapter, <laughs> but thankfully, uh, God humbled me in my study of it and uh, was able to um, take some really good lessons out of this chapter that I hope to uh, bring to you guys tonight, so before we get into it, let's just start with some prayer. Father, uh, we just thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for this time. We thank you uh, for this church body and for those who are here and for those who are watching on live stream and also for those who can't be here, Lord. We are thankful for all the members of our body and um, this wonderful fellowship that we have. We ask that you please be with us tonight. We ask that you please um, just open our hearts to be able to hear your word, Lord, and I ask that Anything that comes from my mouth uh, is ordained by you, Lord, and that uh, these people will only hear your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in chapter 21, and we are continuing on the story of Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel, and we know all the key members at this point. And so now we are at a point where uh, Ahab is uh, going to ask for a vineyard that is not his. So that's where we'll be kicking off tonight in verse 1 of chapter 21. And it says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near to my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I give you the inheritance of my fathers. And so at face value, this might seem like a pretty fair deal uh, to Naboth. Uh, The king is coming to him, and he wants his piece of land and this vineyard. And the reason why he wants it, one, we can imagine that if it's a vineyard, it's very fertile ground, but also because of its location... Being near to the palace and so he wants to have it for his vegetable garden and so he has offered him to go find him another vineyard or if he would like it he'll pay him for it seems pretty fair um, but as much of the Bible we have to look at this in context of you know the Hebrew culture is a culture that we could think about you know Abraham was nomadic you know he traveled and then found land Then they were in Israel in exile, and then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Finally, they came to a place as a people where they had their nation. And so land is very important uh, to the Israelites. And so Naboth is saying, basically, if he's going to give this up, he's giving up his inheritance. But also, you know, you can imagine that for generations, this land has been passed down in his family and has been taught for generations, this will be your land one day. this is the importance of this land. So it has an emotional tie to him um, that goes above and beyond money or anything like that. You could also think that him being in close proximity to the palace, he probably has uh, certain ideas and feelings about the king. Um, we have plenty of examples coming through first kings of Ahab. And the way that he has acted, and so it was probably not lost on uh, Naboth how Ahab acted throughout his life, and so he had a lack of respect for him. You can imagine. We even see it in our in our culture today, in in our politics. You know, oftentimes we respect our leadership, but if if the president wanted to come and have dinner at your house, uh, depending upon if you voted for him or not. <laughs> you might not want to accept that invitation. Or if he said, hey, you know, I want to go, come and have a big gathering at your house. You know, if it was the president that you liked and you voted for, you would open up and roll out the red carpet for him. But if it was the one that you didn't vote for, you might say, you know, go kick rocks. I don't want you here. So we can kind of relate to Naboth in that. Picking up in verse 4. And Ahab went to his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, "I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers." And he lay down in his bed and turned away his face and would not and would eat no food. So here's another example of Ahab's uh, lack of leadership and, and maturity. You know, it's like he basically takes his ball and goes home and cries in the corner of his room, and rather than thinking, "Okay, how can I figure this out? How can I, uh, you know, bring another deal to him?" He goes home and, and cries about it. So. This speaks uh, to the character that we've seen in him before. Verse 5, But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my, vine- my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so I want to take a moment to observe the nature of this marriage between Ahab and Jezebel. Um, You know, it's without question that in marriage in general, God has given clearly defined roles in a marriage. We see it in Genesis two when God says that the man needs a helper and he creates Eve. We see it throughout the Bible and in the New Testament. A good example would be uh, Paul writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians five, twenty two through twenty eight, it says, Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he and is himself its savior. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so we have this beautiful picture of what marriage should be. We live in a culture that wants absolutely nothing to do with this picture of marriage. Not only do they not want clearly defined marriage roles, but they don't want clearly defined gender in general. And so... We have a great lesson to be learned in this chapter of kind of what not to do in marriage roles. We will see it play out here in the next few uh, verses. But Jezebel supersedes her husband and takes it upon herself to take care of this situation. Not only are we going to observe that you know it's a heinous act, but we also can look at it on a small scale because in reality, many of us, do not have it within ourselves or don't have the nature to, you know, to conduct ourselves in such a way that we would act in this way, you know, murdering someone, right? But if we were to apply it into our own lives, we do have you know, the pride within ourselves to think that we know which way is best. And so I don't say that to say that Jezebel, yeah, although she is in the wrong, the blame isn't fully upon Jezebel. It's on Ahab as well. We've seen examples even in the few verses before this of his character and how he acts, right? And so he is not living up to his role and headship in the house. And I think that as, as men, we can look at this story and then we can put it into our own culture and we can see that the, the issues that we're dealing with today, I believe, I'll step away from my Bible for a second because this isn't necessarily God's word, this is my belief. I believe that many of these problems that we're facing today is because men have not, specifically godly men, have not taken up the charge of leading spiritually. And so we'll see how that can go into a really bad place in the next few verses here. Picking up in verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in Naboth, with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of this city, and the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth as head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, curse God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent Jezebel, they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and that he was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. So, let's not overlook that this was an awful thing that happened here that occurred in these verses. Jezebel basically orchestrated the murder of an innocent man to get the land that he owned. Now, that being said, did you see how it went down? She took and wrote a letter in the king's name and then sealed it with the king's seal. You know, back to uh, marriage and relationships, oftentimes we think that we can take things into our own hands if our spouse isn't doing it the way that we want it to be done. And that's both men and women can, can act that way. And that's not clearly, as we you know look back at what Paul wrote in Ephesians, that is not the picture of marriage. You know, even though a man is uh, given headship and is the spiritual leader of the home, he is not to just do as he pleases, whatever way, not thinking about anyone else's feelings, right? He's to put his wife above him, and that to love his wife is to love himself in the same way, and so. I think that's the first lesson that we can glean from this chapter is this lesson of you know, what not to do in a marriage but also apply it to our own lives and okay, let's re-examine of how we're acting within our relationship and make sure that's ends up with what God wants us to do. Picking up in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, Go down to me, Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And so... (laughs) We see Elijah is now coming back into the picture. And as he has been uh, a character, you know, earlier in First Kings, he's following along in that same path that God has used him, basically as the hammer to come and deliver this message to Ahab. And he's not mincing words in what that message is. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off from, I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of. Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So, This is a strong rebuke (laughs) that has been brought upon Ahab and Jezebel for their actions. You know, the the language there of, you know, it's being continued, repeated, the dogs and the birds. This was like the worst thing that could happen. It's going beyond death, you know, that these animals, these unclean animals are now going to eat you afterwards and you won't have a proper burial. So it emphasizes the point of just how bad this judgment is going to come upon this house. Bringing it back to, you know, what's applicable, act, applicable for our lives. You know, it's, it's easy to look at this and say, oh, this, these are terrible things, which they are. And, you know, just kind of brush it off as a story of the Bible. But as I spoke about last time, I had the opportunity to speak. These are true recorded history events, right? And we could also say we might not be um, as evil. I would hope we wouldn't be as evil as these, this king and queen are. But also, if we grew up in these circumstances with absolute power and things like that, who knows what, you know, what our character would be? You know, for us now and the life that God has chosen us to live now in the place that we are now in time and history, we can look and say, you know, the reason why they didn't do what was also, they took the easy way out at almost every turn. And really, we have a choice in our day to day life of are we going to take the easy way out or are we going to take the road less traveled if we continue down that path of continually making choices of the easy way it's easy for us to run into problems but if we do what is hard what we do if we do what is difficult oftentimes that's where we will gain our reward out of that and so we come to Ahab's repentance Verse 25, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Now, I'll just pause there real quick. Those two verses, I, I read that and I think, why was that included? In this text it's almost like you know god ordained for the author to write this and to give a little context before we get to ahab's repentance it's like just so you know just so just to remind you that this guy is basically the worst there ever was so let's put that fresh in your memory before we get to these next few verses Verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, and put sack, sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the Lord, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his, son, in his son's days. I will bring the disaster upon his house. I just find that so interesting how it kind of sets it up. But this is the worst guy. And then now I'm going to show you that I'm going to give him some forgiveness in this situation. But a key component of that, you know, it says that he, he he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He fasted. He laid in the sackcloth. And there's these these grand gestures, you know, to the outside. But what did God say to Elijah? He said, have you seen how he humbled himself before me? It wasn't so much the the gestures that spoke to God, but it was the turning of his heart. I think... uh, Repentance is a doctrine that's somewhat almost gone from our modern church. I think um, it definitely isn't spoken about often. The Bible is uh, a living word, and, and the great thing about one of the great things about the Bible is that you know you might say um, you know the Bible is written thousands of years ago, it's not relatable for today or it's hard to, you know, the Bible isn't going to tell me about, you know, how to do my taxes or, you know, the things that are relevant for today. But if you study God's word, it will teach you about everything. You just have to go looking for it. And so in, in the doctrine of repentance, There's not necessarily, okay, here's this clear definition in the Bible of what repentance is. But if you go looking for it, it's all throughout the Bible. I think a wonderful example of what repentance is is in uh, Isaiah 55, it's Isaiah 55, six and seven. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the lord that he may have compassion on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon that start of of verse seven there says let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts i think that's such a beautiful picture of what repentance is because the way the in verse six it says seek the lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. And we can relate to that many times in our lives where we run into obstacles, where we run into maybe a mistake that we made or challenges in our lives. It's easy for us to seek the Lord. That's not a, a, a thought that's foreign to us or something that we've never done before. But that next verse of the start where it says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The, the hebrew word there for forsake literally means to leave behind so let the wicked man leave behind his way and the unrighteous man leave behind his thoughts and so we see this picture of repentance is not just uh, coming to god and calling for help the picture of repentance is literally leaving behind a life that you once lived, right? And so I think that that is the second uh, lesson, if you will, to to take out of this chapter is that lesson of repentance. Um, So often we can get it wrong, I think, on both sides of the coin. So often we can see maybe people that are closest to us or people that we've known for a long time and they're living their lives a certain way and we know that person and then they come to know Christ and it's almost like a sense of jealousy or um, animosity because you know the life that that person has lived and now when they come to Christ you're thinking oh well now you know oh now everything's washed away all the stuff you did before is washed away right now, sometimes we love that, we rejoice. We rejoice when it's the people we love. But it's when it's the people that we don't love, it's almost like a little annoying. Like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been doing this rodeo for a while, right? And now you're coming along and you're all hyped up about it. And so that's not the right attitude to have because we see that that's all of us. We were all once the unrighteous man, right? The flip side of that coin is, We can sometimes be uh, too easy on it or we can say, oh, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Repentance, you know, that's kind of like an old school idea. It's not that important. I will tell you that this is something that is debated within the Christian community. Um, I have my beliefs and I believe that I can back them up biblically. But there are people that I believe are going to heaven that probably feel quite differently than I do about repentance. But I just want to point out three common mistakes that we make with repentance. And those three mistakes are one, we confuse repentance with confession. Two, we assume repentance is a one-time event. And three, we assume repentance will absolve us of earthly consequences. And so that first mistake, we confuse repentance with confession. It's kind of similar to what we've been talking about. That you know we think just because we say, "Oh, I'm sorry," that that is repentance. Oh, I'm repenting. Oh, I've you know I've acted, I've acted wrong the first six days of the week or the last six days of the week, however you want to look at it. Now we come to Sunday. Can you give me the second and third real quick? Of course. Yeah, I'll repeat them. I'll repeat them again. So we come to Sunday and we say, oh, I'm going to come and I'm going to repent for all the things that I've done Monday through Saturday. Well, that's not what repentance is, right? Confessing your sins before God or before your, your, you know, your brother or sister in Christ is, a, is a, I think, a meaningful thing and it can be fruitful in your life, but it is not repentance. Repentance is an action. You know, it's kind of like when you, you know, you know that one person, and sometimes you're that person, I've been that person before, and you say, uh, oh, I'm going to stop eating sugar, or I'm going to stop eating carbs, you know? And you say it, you almost adopt that identity. I'm I'm, I'm no sugar, guys. I'm no sugar. Right? And then, you know, someone catches you eating a cupcake late at night. (laughs) Well, just, you can say... You don't eat sugar as much as you want to say it. Saying it doesn't mean that you're literally not eating sugar. You have to actually take on the act of changing your habits to to be that way, right? And it's the same way with repentance. Just because I say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I just feel awful. I feel awful. The music hit me just right this Sunday morning, and I just feel so awful for the way I've been living my life. And I am just going to change the way I'm living my life. And then you go home and an hour has passed and you fall back into that old habit. It's just like that cupcake, right? So, one, we confuse repentance with confession. Repentance is not something that's done verbally. It's done through your actions, through your life. Number two, we assume repentance is a one-time event. Now, this is where we can kind of get um, some debate, even within the Christian community. But like I said, I feel like biblically, I, I can back up my views on this. We assume repentance is a one-time event. There is a repentance that comes at salvation. I wholeheartedly believe that. That's what, you know, when Paul talks about we're a new creation in Christ, right? We're new creatures in Christ. There is that transformation. There is that repentance that is a crucial component to salvation. I believe it is probably the hallmark of a true lasting faith is that repentance at salvation. That being said, we also know of the doctrine of sanctification that we continue to become more like Christ. And so at the moment of salvation in almost every instance we know very little of God's word And so we come to this moment, uh, the Spirit reveals Himself to us, we accept Christ into our lives, we repent for that, but there's still things in our lives that we need to clean up to become more like Christ. And so if we take on this attitude of, oh, well, I'm done, it's sealed, we're good to go, I'm just going to keep coming to church, you know, this is my new life, I got my new friends, and, you know, you very well may be saved, I'm not saying that you're not, But, like Paul talks about in Ephesians, you know, you're like that baby who's getting milk. You know, you're not moving on, you're not maturing as a Christian to to move on to that meat, right? And so how can it be that if if we are supposed to be on this journey of sanctification, that repentance is only going to happen once, right? Because if you're growing, if you're constantly growing... And you're like that, you know, you're like that bare piece of marble that God is carving out. The Holy Spirit is going to convict you because you're still in your flesh. You're still here on earth. And so when you come upon those moments of conviction, it's just like to that back to that same point. you say, ah, yeah, you have a point there, Holy Spirit. That's not great. Um, but I really enjoy that. You know, I'm. I'm 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 good. If we stay here, this is good. But don't come into this area. Don't mess with that. Right? We can't have that attitude if we expect growth. If we want to grow, if we want to continue to be sanctified, if we want to, uh, if we want to draw nearer to Christ, we have to let the Holy Spirit come in and continually, for the, you know, for the long haul, for the rest of our lives here on earth, continually come in and chip away. And that, when we turn from that. That act of turning is repentance. So, two, one, we, can, we confuse repentance with confession. Two, we assume repentance is a one-time event. And three, we assume repentance will absolve us of all earthly consequences. So, this is an interesting one, and I feel like it might be the one that's uh, most relevant to most of us. I could say probably me. Uh, definitely most relevant to is, you know, we assume that when we come to a realization of sin in our lives or where we, when we maybe knowingly have chosen to make the wrong choices and then we regret those choices, it is very possible and God to bring about repentance in our lives. You know, sometimes people have to reach rock bottom in order to see, man, I've really messed up, man, I really need to change my ways. And so that does happen, that, that, that repentance comes in these low points in life. That being said, just because you have repented and have turned, we are blessed that we do not have eternal consequences, but we do still have earthly consequences. We do live in a fallen world, We do live in a body that is still here on earth. And so just because you've repented doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with the fallout or the consequences of your actions and your choices. You know, oftentimes we are looking for to get those consequences taken away from us rather than to bring us closer to Christ and really overall for the christian for those of us who are already saved that continual repentance what it is is it is removing barriers between us and christ you know we don't i don't i don't want you to come away from this lesson thinking that i'm saying you know oh you 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 just your whole life needs to be legalistic and you need to just you know, seek out all the sin in your life and and you know you have to look for it in your in your friends and family. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is that if you don't look at it and you just put it away, all that you're doing is you're putting a barrier between you and the Holy Spirit. Because if you are if you have that barrier, he's not gonna be there to listen to you. It's like when we talk about communion, right? when Christ talked about communion, when Paul talked about communion, if you have aught with your brother, don't take communion. Go to them first and resolve that before you come into this holy covenant, right? And so even though the Holy Spirit lives in you and dwells within you, how can you go on living in knowingly living an unrighteous life, living in such a way that the Spirit is convicting you on and you're going to think that, oh, well, our relationship's going to be just fine. Even though I'm ignoring the love and correction that the Holy Spirit's trying to give me, our relationship's going to be just the same. It's not possible. Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, my oldest son's here tonight, and I... <laughs> All of this was written prior to uh, the plan of him coming with us, so he'll probably get a kick out of this, but it's you know it's similar to me of i remember very vividly my dad saying it to me and it's a lesson that i teach my kids now because when they get in trouble they'll say oh dad i promise i promise i promise i'm not going to do it again you know the consequence is coming they know it's coming they know what the consequence is going to be and all they can think about is that consequence and oh i promise i promise i will not do it again And I was the same way, and many of us were the same way when we were kids, I promise. And I say to them, that's great. I'm glad that you're not going to do it again, but it's not about what you're going to do. It's about what you've already done, right? And so in the same way, we know that we're going to spend eternity in heaven, and we should be grateful of that. And really, um, that should be the reminder of when we come to that place of repentance that is our hope, that we know that even though, we've, even though we've messed up, even though that we've knowingly done these wrong things, right? Even though you have someone like Ahab, who is the worst, and Jezebel, who is the worst, right? There is still God's grace for those who will humble themselves and repent. And so with that... Um, I'd like to close with a psalm and uh, if you guys want to bow your heads I, in, in lieu of a, uh, of a prayer, I want to read this, song, this psalm as a prayer, Psalm 51, and I, it's a beautiful picture of David's repentance. Psalm 51, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I I shall be whiter than snow. with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. on your altar. Father, I just thank you for uh, this time. I thank you for your grace, Lord. Your grace is what was the hope of David, that steadfast love that he spoke of, Lord, and your grace is what is our hope, Lord. That it is not by our works or by our righteousness that we're saved, Lord, but by your righteousness, that we can come to you with a humble heart and repent of our ways, Lord, and that you will save us. And that it doesn't matter the grand gestures that we can do or the offerings that we can bring or anything that we can bring to you, Lord. But what matters is that we come to you broken with a broken heart and that you would restore us and that you would rejoice to us with us and that you would pick us up, Lord, and, and heal us and present us, Lord. I thank you for this fellowship, Lord. I thank you for the, the members of this body. And their willingness to learn and also for the love that they show to me and to my family and to one another. We pray all these things in your name, amen.